Chris Reback, and this is a special live edition of Political Wire Conversations. On Friday, I hosted an outstanding live event and discussion at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. It was titled Midterm Elections Preview, Blue Wave or Red Save? I was joined on stage by an all-star cast of panelists, Republican political strategist Rick Wilson, CNN legal and national affairs analyst Asherangapa, 538's Claire Malone, and Political Wire publisher Tegan Goddard. And as you'll hear, the conversation couldn't have been better. Thoughtful, engaging, smart, and fun. One note, though. This conversation occurred before the horrendous, outrageous Pittsburgh tragedy. So, while we discussed last week's pipe bombs, we don't address Pittsburgh. Before we begin, I want to remind you about our show's sponsor, The Cook Political Report, and a special offer for our listeners to get an 18% discount off all subscriptions. You know already. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to The Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to The Cook Political Report. And for Political Wire listeners, a special offer. You can use the code POLITICALWIRE to get 18% off all subscriptions. Just go to cookpolitical.com and use the code POLITICALWIRE, that's one word, to sign up and get 18% off all subscriptions. That's cookpolitical.com, code POLITICALWIRE. Finally, thank you to everyone who rates and reviews this podcast on iTunes. Several more of you did, and it makes a big difference. So if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's our live podcast from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Thank you. Thanks for coming out tonight. Thank you for watching live streaming. I'm Chris Reback. I'm host of Chris Reback's Conversations, and welcome to our special live podcast event, Midterm Elections Preview, Blue Wave or Red Save. In 11 days, America votes. And the other day I had a podcast guest who said to me, democracy is on the ballot. Meanwhile, Donald Trump insists he's on the ballot. And yet at the same time, our country remains as divided as ever by race, income, education, opportunity, gender, political party. So what exactly is at stake on November 6th? What direction will things take? And uh, what will happen next? In lieu of actual crystal balls, we have some of the top strategists and thinkers for the next 60 minutes. So let's get to it. Asha Rangappa is a CNN commentator, legal and national security analyst. She's a former FBI agent, so careful what you say. And in the spirit of true bipartisanship, she is a senior lecturer at a little school down the road Yale University, <laughs> who says that blue and red cannot intermingle. <laughs> Rick Wilson is a political strategist, Republican political strategist. He's also author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Everything Trump Touches Dies. Claire, I know you've already read it. Rick signing autographs afterwards. Claire Malone is a 538 political reporter. She also is one of the panelists on the 538 podcast which is the podcast that you should listen to immediately after listening to mine. And Tegan Goddard is publisher of Political Wire. He is also, like me, a proud MPP graduate from 1992. So let's get to it. Rick, yes, we will sir. start with you. 
I read the rule book. In Boston, when you moderate, you are obliged to quote Tip O'Neill. <laughs> I'm not looking for trouble, so let's quote him. All politics is local. You sure. know the quote. Is that still true? No. Is this a national election or is this a local election? It's become a nationalized election, and that's good and bad for both sides. It's nationalized for the Democrats because they hate Donald Trump so much they will crawl over broken glass in order to vote against him and in order to vote against people they see as his enablers, sycophants, allies, etc. It's been a little better for Republicans in the last couple of weeks in the post-Kavanaugh thing because they finally had some, some things that unified them as a party. Um, and, and the drift that was happening uh, with a lot of Republican candidates statewide and, and local uh, was checked a little bit by that. I think, though, that in the last few days, we've well, you know, once again on this national political roller coaster that we're on, uh, I think the momentum has shifted back to the Democrats in the last three or four days, especially because of the MAGA bomber and, and some of the other external factors. Uh, the market's starting to look shaky and other things like that. So I want to talk about that. We're going to talk about polling. We're going to talk about some of the trending, how Democrats were trending stronger uh, pre-Kavanaugh. That seemed to take a dip. And now, according to you, maybe they're coming back. We'll get into that. Um, but right now, um, Tegan, why don't you fact check our president? <laughs> I know, actually, that's, uh, yeah, you know, that was an unintended uh, poke at humor. Yeah, a few minutes, Chris. Yeah, you, we were <laughs> limited by 60. Uh, is he on the ballot? It depends on who you ask. If you ask Donald Trump, he's absolutely on the ballot. He is defying all odds. He is pretty much campaigning nonstop the final three weeks of this campaign. Um, it's really pretty extraordinary. If you ask the voters, a new NPR, PBS, Marist poll came out this morning, which said roughly two-thirds of all voters are making Trump uh, a part of their vote. Mm -hmm. They're voting either for or against <coughs> Donald Trump in the midterms. If you ask the Democratic candidates, the answer is a little different. You look at if a Wesleyan Media Project came out with an analysis of the last month's worth of ads, and roughly 10% of the ads mentioned Don Donald Trump. Democrats want to talk about taxes, and Democrats want to talk about health care. That's what they don't want to talk about Donald Trump. And only 5% of the ads were actually negative attacks on Donald Trump. That is the lowest percentage of ads in the final month since 2002 when George W. Bush was running, or, or during the first midterm of George W. Bush's term, and he was pretty much inoculated by 9-11 from being attacked. The commander-in-chief could not be attacked at that time. So it's extraordinary that Democrats are ignoring Trump. If you ask the Republican candidates, at least those who haven't retired and flown to the hills, uh, the ones who are running really have no choice but to embrace Trump, and they're going all in with him right now. So... Okay, so if Trump is uh, on the ballot and one of the key issues, if this is becoming a national election and not necessarily a local election, um, Asha, help us please with some context. Um, there's a lot going on. Twelve pipe bombs, around 12, some, some 12 pipe bombs sent to uh, Democratic former presidents, vice presidents, attorney general, and today there's been an arrest. Apparently... We have a caravan of Middle Easterners and Hondurans storming our southern border. <laughs> there is, as well, apparently rioting in California to escape sanctuary cities. We will have a 10% middle-class tax cut implemented before the election. Never mind that uh, Congress is not in session for a while. Jamal Khashoggi was killed by rogue operatives. That's since changed. We have a new Supreme Court justice who many people feel filled a stolen seat. Sincere question. Is our Constitution built 
to withstand this? Yes. Good. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Good night. Thank you. Um, you know, the Constitution is, is designed with the idea uh, that there could be a tyrannical leader who tries to who take over. Um, I think the weakness here is that it also depends on each branch understanding its own role and it's and really taking that duty and their constitutional duties as as in, you know as institutions and in, and implicit checks seriously. And I think what we are finding to be the weakness is not of the structure that's created, but of the people that are in it. Um, and that, to me, I think is the big problem that we have right now. And that's one of the questions that we will have um, in this conversation. What might happen? Constitu you know, one of the outcomes of this election will be the House most likely going one direction or the other. Well, it definitely will go one direction or the other, but it seems, <laughs> seems a bit more in play than the Senate, although we can talk about that. And uh, what might happen to some of the things that you're talking about, constitutional responsibility, if that occurs? What direction will the House go? Uh, among the places that we all look to for data and forecasting is 538. I don't have Marshall McLuhan behind uh, a curtain, but I do have Claire Malone here from 538. So, Claire, the latest 538 forecast data, the House has a 6 and 7, percent, six and seven chance that Democrats will control the House. Senate, a 5 and 6 chance that Republicans maintain control of the Senate. Um, I know you've been looking at some of the key races closely. Um, on the promise that Nate Silver's not listening right now, <laughs> can we trust the 538 data? Well, I think we've built the models uh, to the best of our ability, and we use all the public polling that we have. They're actually, we were talking about this in the room um, before we came out here, that there's actually a lot of states that are really key that aren't being polled a lot, South Dakota, Montana, and there are states that are being overpolled. Uh, Texas and Florida. Florida. <laughs> um, and so we aren't, we aren't getting as many polls from states that we want to. So um, we've been trying to write about those, those uh, factors that our model might be missing a little bit. Um, but it, I think we think, I guess, the model and what we'll call <laughs> conventional wisdom seems to be sort of aligning, which is that the Democrats are probably going to take the House and the Republicans are likely going to hold on to the Senate. And in some ways, you can think about it with, uh, you can go back to 2016 and look at um, the split in the popular vote in the Electoral College. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million. The Democrats are winning the House of Representatives, whereas the Senate, uh, which on this map has, there were 10 Democrats who, uh, were, in, who were up for re-election in states that Trump won. Now, that, there have been some surprises, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, where Democrats are doing much better. Um, but it's a real struggle for the Democrats on this map. And I think in some ways that reflects the advantage that Republicans now have in 2018 in the Electoral College where rural populations, they do better. And, the, and those states are, are on the Senate map this year. So the data might be accurate because the data, uh, for example, in 2016 gave an 80% chance that maybe more by 7.38 p.m. that Hillary Clinton would win, but that meant that there was a chance that she wouldn't, and she didn't. So it's yeah. not that, so the data could be right. In terms of, so, so maybe it's not, should we trust the data? Should, yeah. we, should we listen to the polls? Should, should we pay attention to them um, or, or not? 
It's a, it's a tough question. I mean, with, with 2016, what was difficult was um, we saw a lot of voters that, so when pollsters do polls, they look at a universe of, they call it a universe of likely voters. So people who have voted in previous elections and they, they're on the rolls, um, they say to pollsters that they're likely voters. And what happened with Trump's candidacy and what was so remarkable is that he reached people who hadn't been on the rolls for a while and polls missed those people too. And I think that that's, you saw a lot of problems with polling there. The polling industry is also at a bit of a crossroads um, because people don't pick up their phones as much. I'm, you know, so it's skewed. So we think the best polls are these live. You know, we, you actually get an, a person on the phone talking to you. That's a good poll, um, but it skews older, it skews whiter, and so pollsters are trying to come up with internet polls, or they're oversampling in certain ways so they can get populations that they're missing. There was sort of an infamous LA Times tracking poll in 2016 that had. I believe this was, it was one younger black, uh, I think, man on the poll, and that person dropped out or changed their opinion, and they had been oversampling him to, to sort of, to, and the, tr the poll completely changed. So I think people are getting smarter about being consu news consumers and considering polls. I think journalists are incorporating polling data more smartly into their writing, but yes, it's still... We, there are flaws in, in the gathering project of, of how, are, you know, how are the polls doing and where are we polling. Um, but I would definitely, I mean, we all kind of have been making a plea over, over Twitter and articles to say, stop polling Texas, poll right. South Dakota. I mean, North Dakota, you know. And, and so, Rick, what about the early voting? So if, if sure. you know, the polls, we've got that side of it, but we are seeing extraordinary, record-breaking early voting. We really are for an off-year election seeing some, some pretty massive numbers. Um, particularly in Florida, North Carolina, and elsewhere. Yeah, the Democrats are, traditionally the Democrats have rolled their voters out on election day. That's generally been the last push. They did the, the field organizing. So with, with the advent of early voting and absentee voting, they're finally picking up the tools in the toolkit. So in Florida, they're up about seven points from where they were in 2014, which is good news for them. The Republicans are up a bit too, but and I can tell you specifically from Florida, that's one of my home, home turf places, We've been doing A-B and early voting aggressively for 20 years now. We're just, the Democrats are just learning how to pick up that, like I said, pick up that toolkit. There is a huge amount of voter interest out there. Um, and the real question marks for Democrats are, are they going to be able to sufficiently turn out African-American voters and Hispanic voters? Because they've got a, a pretty high voter intensity across a lot of other domains, including women. Um, and, and it hasn't shifted all the political climate in the Senate races, as, as you know, Claire was talking about. But we're seeing from the early voting that, that Democratic women are turning out in good numbers. The question is, are they going to push out African-American and Hispanic voters uh, in the early or on Election Day this year? That's going to really make a lot of difference in terms of, do they pick up 30 seats or do they pick up 45 seats? And do they pick up, you know, or do they hold their ground in the Senate you know, where the, 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 look, the Senate landscape this year was always favorable to the GOP. Yeah. It was always favorable. This was, this was a historical anomaly uh, that you had, you know, uh, the, the, the overhang of Trump and only eight vulnerable Republicans in play. So, Tegan, is this what you've been seeing in terms of the polling, in terms of the early voting, and in terms of the trending in some of the uh, key races? You want to know what we know about early voting? <laughs> People are voting early. Yes. That's it. <laughs> we don't draw any conclusions from that because we don't know. 
We don't know who they voted for. We, we, we just don't know. We, we, two years ago, we saw a tremendous number of, of articles written trying to deduce what it meant when people are voting early. They're all wrong. So I would just be very cautious. But, but people are excited. That's true. Inferential people, demographics, is a, it's a weak read exactly. in analyzing early voting. Okay, exactly. but historically, more votes usually mean, more people voting usually means more Democratic votes. Have, has that gravity has that kind of property of political physics changed under Trump? Well, that, once again, we don't know. Uh, in terms of early voting, it may just be Democrats who want to vote early because they've been saying for two years, I can't wait till the election day. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as they can vote early, they're going to vote early. So we don't know. Maybe they've changed it. Maybe Democrats are not waiting till election day anymore. But I, I would wait until after election day to figure out what all that means. But I do think that when it comes to forecasting and looking at the polls and trying to understand this, when Claire talks about the, the, the Senate races that are being polled particularly, we're trying to figure out what's going on with the Senate. It, it just it mirrors what happened two years ago. The 538 model had a 70% chance Hillary Clinton was going to win. And the postmortem after that was there weren't enough good state polls. There just weren't enough good state polls. We didn't know what was happening in Michigan, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. places like that. Same thing is happening right now. And if you go back to 1986... And you look at the Senate races in 1986, there were seven races in 1986 that were decided by a total of 98,000 votes. Mm -hmm. Okay? That could have gone anywhere. That was the difference between the Democrats taking a 55-seat majority in the Senate or the Republicans hanging on to it. That's a huge difference, 98,000 votes across the entire country. So we will see what happens about this. But I would be a little cautious about some of these forecasts um, because there are, some, there are some holes in them. That's one you know, they're only as good as the polls that we have. A second one, which I know Nate Silver has written about, um, which I thought was an excellent point, is that Democrats are raising money like nobody's business. Yeah. Yeah. It is extraordinary. I mean, yeah. if we just talk, talking about uh, Senator Heitkamp from North Dakota, in the first 17 days of this month, she raised $12 million in North Dakota. I mean, that's more money you can, than you can spend in North yeah. Dakota. And, and it was all past the Brett Kavanaugh vote. The right. People are just contributing to Democrats. You look at the Texas Senate race, Democrats are raising money like nobody's business there. It's happening across the country. But those two races you just mentioned are races where, yeah, High Camp got all that post-Kavanaugh vote money, and yet she continues to trail by more, according to the polls. Beto O'Rourke, maybe Texas seems a little bit more confusing, but I think most of the polls seem to be showing uh, Cruz taking a lead, even mm -hmm. though there's the money. Does money translate into votes, or does money translate into people in the urban centers, let's say, sending money to places they want to go, Rick? Well, it's what I call the Depeche Mode rule. Everything counts in large amounts. And <laughs> these, the, the, the amount of money that's coming into some of these folks is... It, the, the peanut butter is not spread evenly across the, the, the whole bread. Because Jackie Rosen, if she had $12 million, would probably be in a very good position right now. Instead, it's going to be a knife fight in a phone booth all the way down. Um, Kristen Cinema, same story. Huh. So you end up, there is a celebrification of politics where the hot flavor candidate, uh, you know, you end up with a long tail effect. The hot flavor candidate is going to get an enormous amount of money, even though you know, Beto O'Rourke is a top quality candidate. As Democratic candidates go, he's absolutely in the top tier. It's also Texas. And it's uh, Texas. It's still the red state we call Texas. It's also Texas, where they love guns. It's also Texas. And finally, it's Texas. <laughs> um, 
but he's got, he's got an enormous ocean of money right now um, in a race that, you know, if, if Beto wants to really cement his future for national politics, he's going to ship some of that money off in the last seven or ten days mm-hmm. here to some other people. Because, you know, he, and it'll never happen, by he the He keeps way. getting it, asked about that. It, he it'll says never he's not going to do it. He's I not know. sharing. It'll never happen. But he's going to run for president. There are places, <laughs> there are places that, that, you know, that could use, that $5 million would make every bit of difference. Um, and he's going to raise $5 million every couple of days now between now and Election Day. Okay. Before we get off of uh, voting and we get off of the topic of elections broadly, Asha, what do we have to worry about most? Voter interference from Russians, <coughs> voter suppression from certain governors and legislatures, or voter fraud from illegal immigrants? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think voter suppression is probably the biggest fear. Um, You know, I think both, you know, in ways that have been affected by court decisions that have come down and, you know, gerrymandering, but also, you know, in in Georgia particularly, where, um, you know, they just lost some several yeah. hundred thousand... Just can't just find can't them. Find those, I know uh, I put early them someplace. Votes. Where'd they go? Um, you know, in terms of... And I think this goes to a little bit of the, the, the voter machines, which are very susceptible to interference. Um, you know, after t- the 2000 election, Bush v. Gore, Hanging Chads, you all remember that. Um, I feel like Hanging Chad should be a romantic comedy. Like, I don't know. That, whenever I say Hanging Chad, it's like... Anyway. Um, I, I was thinking horror movie. So, you know, the, the federal government uh, offered a lot of money for upgrades of voting systems. And basically, you had these uh, companies that came in with digital voting systems that kind of came into the market, I think three main ones, that many states adopted. Um, Those are, from what I understand, I'm friends with somebody who's actually representing a a client who's suing uh, the state of Georgia. Um, According to him, these are way out of date um, and basically have not been updated since 2013. So if you imagine your computers and, you know, your software, the, the updates that you get on a daily basis, these are, have not been updated since 2013. And so they're very vulnerable. Um, and also they, so I think it's not just the, the interference from the, uh, before that they're voting. There's also an issue with some of these machines that afterwards you can't adequately count them. In other words, there's no digital footprint of who you voted for. You know, you get a barcode if you vote, and it doesn't. You don't know whether that barcode actually lines up with who you voted for. So, um, you know, to the extent that this is prevalent, you know, it's not just the Russians. It's just it, it's it, these are vulnerable systems that don't leave an adequate trail to allow you know one person one vote to be guaranteed to each person. Uh, then you have some of these issues with the secretaries of state that that are losing ballots. So I think there's a number of different issues that so, are involved. So just to be clear, though, on that software update issue. The GRU j- does have some uh, operating system updates that they would be happy to push. <laughs> Absolutely. And they've yeah. poked around. I mean, we know yeah. from the Mueller investigation that, uh, you know, I forget what number it's at now, like 21, 39, I, I think some it was, number I think of it was st- 23 state databases were at least probed. They were poking around. So they had the voter file. Yeah. yeah. They, they went into the voter files in those states. Illinois was actually penetrated. So right, they, yes, yeah, correct. So, yeah. And correct. I think yeah. and voter that, rolls and the machines. Um, and, you know, one of the things that is, is both 
fortunate and unfortunate for us is that you know, we have a federal system, so these are all at the state level. The solutions rest at the state level for them to fix it. The federal government can't force any state to um, okay. adopt certain So earlier issues. you said the Constitution was built to withstand this, and we all let out a big sigh of relief. Now you're freaking us out. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Because you're... So can we... I mean, I can't believe... I, I don't want to ask the question. Can we trust elections then? Can we trust our, our elections? We have to trust elections. But you're saying the things that you're saying. I'm saying the things I'm saying because they're true. Um, I believe that we have people on it. Um, I think lawyers are basically everybody's best friend right now because they're the ones who are at the forefront of this, making sure that all these issues are, you know, at least uh, that there's some accountability and it's being documented, all of these, um, you know, falling through the cracks. But at some level... I think that we have to make a commitment to believe in our process and believe that it, even if it's imperfect, even if it's you know being manipulated by certain actors, um, that that we are going to be able to get through it, and that we have to you know trust outcomes and keep moving forward. Because the minute that we begin to delegitimize um, every you know the electoral process is when people give up when people start, stop voting, um, when Russia achieves its objective, which mm -hmm. is to get us to say, I don't know, it doesn't matter anymore, who cares, everybody's corrupt. Um, so I just believe from a, you know, our, just pr on principle, we have to trust There's the an extraordinarily easy fix for this. It's called paper ballots. Yes, <laughs> and, that's right. And receipts. This is not, Make America this is not rocket again. science. We did this a long, for a long time, and people would, would cast their vote, and they would have a, they, they'd be checked in when they got to the voting place, they'd cast a vote, that would be archived. And your vote is a private matter, but I think right now the, the, the feeling that everything is ephemeral, everything is digital, everything mm -hmm. can be manipulated by some outside actor, I think, I think re-adopting paper ballots is the way of the future. Um, look, it, the hanging chat experience, remember those were still paper ballots, they yeah. were punch ballots, but they were paper. If, uh, imagine where we would be if Bush v. Gore had been settled because we were fighting over whether a digital file had That's been right. corrupted or manipulated. We'd have blood in the streets at that point. So I, I think it's vital that we get back to something that gives people confidence, something that is tangible, and something that isn't ephemeral and isn't digital. And that isn't vulnerable. And that isn't vulnerable to distant hacking. Because, hack you know, let's ballot. just hypothesize the Russians can, you know, get into election systems at some point. Their hackers are pretty good from what I'm told. Um, but you know they're not going to be able to deploy Boris to each precinct in this country to hand scribble on ballots and change outcomes. We hope. <laughs> we believe. So under the presumption, uh, because I guess if it's not the case, then first uh, it's a big problem, and secondly, uh, it would mean we could end this discussion on what happens in the midterm elections right now. Under the presumption that uh, the, the elections are full and fair and accurate, and will give us the winners that we're supposed to have. Claire, let's talk about some of the locations and whom some of those winners might be. Some of the states that I have been um, finding really, really interesting. Are you, uh, have you been following Arizona, the Senate race? I have, yeah. Okay, good. Can we talk about Arizona for a <laughs> let's second? Let's talk about Arizona. So, um, great state, the it's Florida great... of the West. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Have you trademarked that yet? Because if not, I'm getting off the stage right now. I think I wrote a piece about Arizona. I, I tried to slip it in. I don't remember, it? Okay, I don't remember a, it stuck. That's a, that's a great line. 
Um, Rick, Rick then is from the Arizona of the of south, the east, yeah, yeah, of the east. Um, so I saw the clip. I'm sure you saw it uh, yesterday too, where um, Republican Representative uh, Martha McSally, she's running for Senate to try to fill the Jeff Flake seat against uh, Kristen Sinema, and uh, um, McSally says um, uh, pre-existing conditions. We want to protect them. And, and, and then there was Democrat you know, pointing out that that wasn't the case. And then she said, um, wait a minute, why are we talking about health care? Let's talk about the caravan. Don't you want to talk about, let's talk about what the vote, what do voters want to talk about? Do they want to talk about health care or do they want to talk about the caravan and what's going on in Arizona? So I actually do think voters want to talk about health care. And I do think that, you know, Martha McSally is an interesting person to be pushing the caravan thing because it's kind of unnatural for her in a lot of ways. She is, if people don't know, she is a, I, th- I believe she was the first female fighter sure. pilot. Um, she's kind of a mainstream Republican or was pre-Trump, but Arizona, I don't know if you guys remember the primary where you had Sheriff Joe in the primary yeah. and it was kind of a, it was an ugly, it was not a good, it was not a good look as they say for <laughs> Republicans. And so McSally had to come out and kind of address this um, far right-wing base that she has, that she needs to, to turn out in this state. But I do think that, that I mean, we taken mentioned earlier the number of um, ads that Democrats are running about the health care bill. And it mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's an incredibly unpopular uh, piece of legislation. And I think pe- voters do want to talk about that. Um, Trump has kind of been sending out the bat signal saying we should talk about the caravan. Um, and I do think it's, a, it's an X factor that people are worried about in the last couple of weeks of the campaign. I don't know if it's an October surprise so much as like a, a weird, a weird long story with a long tail. Um, but I do think voters at the end of the day are real. The, the health care bill has become oddly, you know, eight years after tons of Democrats lost their seats over yes. Obamacare. Yeah. Um, it's now become a bit of a boon to them. The fact that, um, you know, skinny, you know, if, if skinny repeal had, had gone through, I mean, I think the Republicans would be in an even worse position. Totally. Um, so I think McSally is dead wrong, but kind of forced into her position by dint of she's in a border state and she's running in a party that's become incredibly activist, right? And she's just not I mean, I don't think naturally she's that kind of person. Tegan, is there a race that you are looking at? There was a question uh, from a political wire reader, so you probably ought to get that question. Um, It came in in advance. Um, What is the bellwether race for the rest of the country um, that you would be really looking at? I think it's the congressional race in Kentucky, uh, the 6th District, where Amy Amy McGrath is running. Uh, If on election night... Amy McGrath wins. Uh, Democrats are going to have an outstanding night. Okay, so, tell everyone why. Uh, she's she is she is yeah. a, as well a fighter pilot. Um, she has uh, you know strong military credentials. She has run a closing ad today, which is probably the she just just put it on the air, which is probably the perfect way to address if you're a Democrat running in a red state trying to address Trump. And she basically says, look, I don't agree with Trump on a lot of things, but I do. Asha will appreciate this. I do believe in the Constitution. He was elected by our Constitution. We are a nation of laws, and we need to respect that. And so as long as he's res- president, we're going to respect him. And, but she has her own views, and she's pushing of all the things that she cares about, health care, as are most Democrats right now. Health care is their number one issue. But 
when you go back to some of these issues that, they're, that, they're, that the Republicans are also running on, they're bringing up the caravan. Donald Trump's bringing up the caravan. It's immigration, immigration, immigration. And it reminds me when Chris and I were students here, you know, a few years ago, um, there was something, uh, you know, we would talk about soccer moms and NASCAR dads and these swing, who are the swing voters of this election. Nobody's running about swing voters anymore. They're all trying to get their base out to the polls, and that's what the Republicans are doing. Immigration works. It got Donald Trump elected. It's, it's what he's betting everything on right now, and so that's why he's talking about this caravan. And he is, if, if we know anything about Donald Trump in the last two years, he is relentless. He is not going to stop talking about this caravan. He is sending troops to the Mexican border right now as we speak. This will be the issue of the next 11 days. He was disappointed, actually, that this mail bombing took place because yeah. it took it right off the front pages, and he talked today about how it's killing the Republicans' momentum. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the caravan and immigration is also a preemptive way of delegitimizing the election yes. in the like if in the event that Republicans lose because there's the whole illegal voting thing that is underneath that that conspiracy of millions and millions of illegal votes so I think um, it, it's both a, a preemptive point. strategy in terms of justifying it if they lose, but then also hoping you, to mobilize. Do you feel like there's pretext going on? I mean, pre- I don't know. It just seems like it a yeah. little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, and, and that was part of what. Uh, it kind of felt pre-2016, we were told how the election was rigged. I think it was less rigged once, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. once the results came in. Um, Rick, uh, when I watch uh, political television, I, of course, uh, watch you and I watch uh, Asha and uh, I watch Claire and Tegan when they're on as well. But this week, I watched Anthony Scaramucci. He was everywhere this week and he's got a book out. And uh, I got to tell you, uh, he made sense to me. Um, he was asked about Trump's lies, mm-hmm. specifically that question, and the political divide. And he said, "Blue-collar people like Trump. Blue-collar people like Trump because he's quote a challenge to the status quo and a challenge to the establishment." Frankly, when you guys, this was on Morning Joe, he was telling them, when you guys are upset about it and you're listing all the lies and you're trying to explain that you can't get a tax cut in 10 days, people are almost happy about the fact that he is a wrecking ball inside of Washington and smashing into the establishment. If you want to beat the president, exposing his lies or explaining them to people, that's probably not going to beat the president. I think what would beat the president is, okay, here's a package of ideas for you. The Mooch went on to say, it's halftime. Trump's offensive strategy is working. Democrats need to change their game plan. Do they? Well, look, Democrats are holistically bad at politics. (laughs) They just are. Occasionally they strike an amazing moment where they'll get a Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama who has all these interpersonal and communication skills that lift them up over their disorganization, internal divisions, antediluvian policy prescriptions, and, and general you know, uh, train wreck of, of competing interest groups that drag them into you know, fights we don't even see but that cause all this friction. So uh, the, the fact that Democrats right now are seriously still thinking about putting Bernie or Hillary on the top of the ticket in any capacity for 2020 blows my mind on one level, but it's not surprising on the other. They're not good at, at putting the whole package together. Now, Trump is blowing up 
the, uh, a lot of the norms and, and values in Washington, but because he's got two big luxuries that have allowed him to do that. One, the economy is still afloat on a gigantic ocean of Federal Reserve money that's been keeping it afloat for the last 10 years after the financial collapse. The Fed flooded the markets, zero interest loans, all this other stuff. That's what's kept the economy afloat, not Donald Trump's golden touch. Um, so that's a big luxury he's had, is the economy's been great. The second luxury he's had is we have not faced a single big externality, a single big threat. God forbid, no one wants this country to be, uh, suffer from a terrorist attack or a de- natural disaster of some enormous scope. But what happens if you're the national leader and you've divided this country so profoundly and you've turned everything into an existential us versus them fight? You've made it your enemies of the state, etc. What happens when he faces something like that? So I think everything with Trump is contingent on, on events. I think everything with Trump is also contingent upon his character, his personality, his temperament. Because at any moment, you know, we talk about all these things in the election that have sort of set the stage, immigration, and healthcare, all these things. It can all change tomorrow morning. Donald Trump could wake up tomorrow morning and sit on the golden toilet and tweet out something crazy. And every Republican in the country is going to you know, put their head in their hands and go, oh my God, what just happened? Or he's going to tweet out something crazy, and every Democrat will have a new thing they can go after for the, for the last 10 days of the campaign. So, uh, listen, Anthony is an interesting guy, okay? And, and as much as he comes across as a coked-out leprechaun half the time, <laughs> he, he kind of has a raw understanding of something, some of Donald Trump's internal personality characteristics. That right. I think he, he sometimes like, it hits the nail on the head occasionally. I would just like to clarify that we have no evidence that he's a coked-out leprechaun. <laughs> I said like no, a coked-out leprechaun. Yeah, there's there's sure no actual <laughs> evidence of that. Um, but, but Rick, before I let you go and, and move on, because there's a, a great line that Claire wrote that uh, um, I want to ask her about. Why, are, from a political strategy point of view, why are Democrats so bad at it? I mean, they can read your book. I read your book. I loved it. I think I can go be a strategist now. They love, they love two things more than anything else. They love stunt casting, and they love this idea that you're going to have a top-down political monoculture, and so that a Democrat who runs in Cambridge, Massachusetts, is just like a Democrat who runs in Alabama, or just like a Democrat who runs in Pennsylvania, and it's just not the case. You know why? People lost their minds over Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, she's wonderful. Ponytail Che Guevara there scales to about 25 non-African-American districts in the whole country. Maybe. Maybe. Connor Lamb? You you give me a Connor Lamb? I can can kick Republicans' asses up and down the board in about 75 districts around this country. I think Claire probably agree with that. I I don't know if I agree with you or not. He scales scales a lot better. (laughs) He scales a lot better than Ocasio-Cortez. If you're going to go and compete in places that are, that are purple, you don't put Ocasio-Cortez's out there as the, as the lead dog. I agree with you that you don't put a, a declared Democratic Socialist candidate in every, yeah. in every county. I guess I would take issue with... I mean, what I would say is the Democrats have... A more, they have it's a bigger tent party, right? Sure. So they have to... Their problem, I think, often comes down to in candidate selection, their groups often fight. So... You saw Bernie Sanders trying post-2016 to embrace some pro-life Democrats in kind of, I think, the sort of Connor Lamb vein of things to say, like, listen, we're a welcoming party. Are you like an old-school Catholic Democrat who felt alienated by um, the last election, but you're into union politics? Come back. We still have people who are catered to you. So I think their problem sometimes comes down to public fights 
uh, about, um, I guess, litmus test issues, right? Sure. Is, it, is it betraying our values as Democrats to let in this pro-life? But that's, that, that's exactly my point, though, is there are places in this country where, you know, look, the Democrats lost, I think it's 1,180 seats since Obama in state and federal elections. There are places in the South where guys like me as Republicans, we would go and win seats for our candidates in Democratic areas because we knew we could go in and talk to them about faith and guns and abortion, and they weren't 100... That, those, those things weren't 100%, you know, San Francisco, Cambridge-type sure, policy but think, positions. But there are also candidates in the South... Uh, and big populations that people think of as sleeping giants, right? I mean, sure. the jug, you know, so Stacey Abrams, that's her proposition, is turn out more black voters. I think, you know, the Doug Jones election isn't a perfect example because of uh, Roy Moore, but the idea that um, huge numbers of black Democrats came out and gave sort of Obama-era level numbers in a special election, that's interesting, and they voted for a white Democrat who they actually thought had a chance of winning in a state that's basically one-party rule. Sure. So I do think there are... I mean, I think Democrats, if in an ideal world, would say, well, we want to walk and chew gum at the same time. We want to have Connor Lamb win in PA and be like, you know, all-boys high school, you know, Jesuit high school you know, man of the year, and we want to have Stacey Abrams be able to turn out these, you know, really kind of sleeping giant constituencies in, in, the, in the South. Like Claire, so that why you, that's why you avoid the monoculture. Claire, I want to uh, ask you about something else, because if I don't get a question in about Brett Kavanaugh, um, people are going to go insane. Um, I saw where you said, uh, Brett Kavanaugh is the Access Hollywood tape of the 2018 midterm elections. There I am. Yeah. Uh, you got to hear the line. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh is the Access Hollywood tape of the 2018 midterms. What do you mean by that? So uh, Access Hollywood happened a little bit later in the cycle. I can't remember what day in October it was. October 7th, I okay, believe. There you go. You remember it. Um, but it was an event that kind of, I think, shocked people into realizing how partisan America is all over again, which was, um, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings and the Access Hollywood hearings in, in, uh, and the Access Hollywood tape sort of smushed together sex and politics and hot-button issues in ways that people, you know, that lit up, lit up America, not just the political universe, um, and made people talk about the issue. And I think that they are both events that have staying power through Election Day. And with Kavanaugh and with Access Hollywood, you really saw people go into team corners and take positions that I think if... If, you know, the Access Hollywood tape was some random guy and if Brett Kavanaugh was some random guy, people would maybe have more nuanced takes on the issue. But, you know, I remember being in, in North Carolina during the Access Hollywood fallout and talking to, you know, like a, the, the little old ladies who run the state GOP offices. And, you know, they were telling me, you know, they were giving me the line about locker room talk. And it was really a striking thing to hear from, frankly, a like a genteel, older, white, southern lady to say, basically, well, saying grab him by the pussy is, is just a thing men say. And I, thought, I found it you know, very striking. And it was, it was a, again, a reminder. We talk about this all the time at 538, that America is an incredibly partisan place and that people don't actually care about policy um, at, all. <laughs> like, at all. I know this is Harvard. Sorry, but, yeah. 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 <laughs> I know this is Harvard, but people, I mean, 
voting in politics is very pharmonic. It has much more to do with like dating and romance than it does with what you're learning in a classroom. It's about people that you identify with from a gut level, who you see yourself and your, your family history in. Um, and Access Hollywood and Kavanaugh, I think, just really throw it into sharp relief. So, yeah, that's kind of what I meant by that line. There, there's a focus group phrase that I heard after Access Hollywood, and a Republican woman said, even if it's true, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, and this goes and to And that's what, I think that's how it has, has ramified in both parties, by the way. Even if it's true, it doesn't matter. Uh, this goes to what you were saying about Scaramucci. Um, you know, it's true that pointing out when, when the president lies is not going to do anything. So um, I'm teaching a class on disinformation and democracy, and we're talking about uh, the psychology mm. of disinformation, why people believe things and they don't change their minds even after they're confronted with the truth. And it's because um, at this point, partisan affiliation um, has become so tribal that your willingness to support a candidate is about your loyalty to other people in your tribe than it is about whether you care about the particular issues, whether you like the particular candidate, whether you believe actually the facts that they are putting out. Um, it's about social acceptance um, within you know, this group that you feel a belonging to. And I think that's what you're saying. You know, when these big hot button issues come up, they're not actually, I mean, I think it would, it would take, I, I would hope that there is something that would get people to transcend those loyalties, um, but it is really about group belonging and not about. Well, what's so amazing issues. about these issues is that you know they come up you know month until the polls right now. We are now 11 days from election day, which was two years ago when James Comey came out with his the emails of uh, Anthony Weiner, and so that happened two years ago, and that changed everything. You know, in, in terms of how that election turned out. So as we sit here 11 days out. We don't even know what may happen, yeah. you know, for these elections. And, the, the, you know, when you, you can look at, you know, whatever polling, whatever models, there are a lot of races that can turn mm -hmm. like that. In the I've got a question, follow-up question for you, Tegan. Um, a reminder and a, that folks can start lining up, if you would like, if you have questions on uh, policy, uh, voting, um, dating, love, uh, whatever it is that you have. Um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take them while folks are, are kind of lining up. Tegan, um, if Democrats... So uh, I read the line the other day how uh, Trump had um, you know, taken over, probably was a Rick Wilson line, had taken over um, the Republican Party and, and, and remade that party. If Democrats don't at least deliver the House, what happens to the Democratic Party? <laughs> it will be a, an absolute bloodbath. I mean, the party will tear itself apart. Um, they have been spent. They have spent nearly every day for two years waiting for this moment, and they have raised money like they've never raised money before. They are turning out. The enthusiasm in a midterm election may be as high as a presidential election right now. If they do not deliver and actually start winning elections, the party will be torn to pieces. Absolutely. Or consolidates around a, diff a completely different, more I guess, left-leaning. Uh, point of view. So right now there are, I don't know, tons of <laughs> potential 2020 candidates, some of whom are offering, like, I can win over Trumpy voters. I don't know. Maybe so so you, think, you think there's a leftward This push. is just my, you know, yeah. <laughs> my counter... Yeah, I don't know. But it's, yeah, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the apocalypse, I think. <laughs> uh, we have a question. If you would uh, say your name, uh, make it uh, kindly a 
question, not a speech. Um, and no wagering, please. My name is Philip Lynch. I'm a local resident. I have a question for Ms. Malone. Uh, right now, the Demo Democrats have a tough lift in the senatorial election because of the map. But <clears throat> does 538 have any prediction as far as what would happen if, hypothetically, all the Senate seats were up in this election? What would happen to the Senate? Uh, and uh, if I can get away with it, I have a question for Mr. Uh, Wilson. What do you think Donald Trump will do if the Democrats do take back the House? How will he react? Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, I think if, if all the Senate seats were up, there are more, I guess, quote-unquote, red states right now. So I think I would say that the, uh, the Republicans would, would, would take the map, I guess. And Rick, what's your prediction of uh, how President Trump might react if he gets bad news? Well, I think he's going to, uh, as Ashton said, we're going to, he's going to try to delegitimize the election first. Mm -hmm. The second thing is he's going to try to do his usual reality TV star act, and he's going to call her like Wrinkly Pelosi or some crazy nickname, and he's going to go into basically a several-week hissy fit um, trying to, diminima, to, to, to minimize and to diminish the, the Democrats' win and to try to turn this into something that is you know, just one more Twitter competition. Um, and, uh, and aside from that, on the, on the, the less visible area, he's going to be lawyering the hell up like he's never lawyered up before because everybody in this White House <laughs> is going to be under investigation. Is that true, Asha? Uh, FBI, so if that occurs, House takes over... Start to see subpoenas, start to see taxes. Well, I mean, let's, be, let's understand. I mean, the, the shift in politics isn't going to change what the FBI is investigating. I mean, they are continuing on that investigation. They're going to do that regardless of who's there. Um, and I do believe that that's happening uh, quite independently. There's a few things that make a difference, though. Um, you know, one is the congressional investigatory power um, and their power That's subpoena, right. which is great. Um, you have uh, the House Judiciary Committee, for example, um, going back to the Kavanaugh hearings. We, they could subpoena uh, what instructions were given by the White House to the FBI when it came to investigating um, the allegations that were made against Brett Kavanaugh. And they can, they can find out the parameters of what that was about, which is right now very obscured. Um, the House Intelligence Committee, which has been a joke uh, until now. By the way, I'm flying to Fresno tomorrow because mm. I will do anything in my power to get Devin Nunes out of uh, <laughs> office. Yeah. I, I, think, I think he's, after the president, probably the biggest security, national security threat um, in, in the government right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, you know, and, and because he's been using his power to expose methods and sources and um, try to impede this investigation into Russian interference. Now, if you actually had a normal committee running that, they could come back, they could uh, interview people that they, they should have been interviewing this whole time um, and, you know, get to the bottom of some things and, and get tax returns from the president potentially too. And lastly, remember that Mueller's investigation is going to finally end in a report to Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, not to Congress, not to the public. Okay, He has no authority to make any of his findings public. Now, Rod Rosenstein has the authority to turn it over to Congress, 
Um, but at that point, there, you know, there's no guarantee that it's going to become public. So once you have um, some turnover in uh, these committees, and he can turn it over to the Judiciary Committee, um, that can actually be made public. Um, because in the absence of you know, any kind of congressional committee that's going to get to it, that's the only other way that we're going to find unless, out. Unless Democrats take the House and they can demand the report. Correct. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, they can, or they can get it, and yeah. it, but right now, you know, there's no way for right. it to become public. Which is another reason why, if Democrats don't win the House, there will be a bloodbath. <laughs> Please. Hi, I'm Marie Dighton. I'm a mid-career here at HKS. Um, Claire, you particularly have uh, written a lot about some of the state races. Could you give us an update on what you think are interesting state races and some of the dynamics that are going on? You mean like like governors races? Things yep, like that. Governor. Sure. AG. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually haven't written that much about attorney general's races, so I know they're important, and I think you can read about them on 538. I mean, I guess, in general, the governor's map is interesting, and we don't pay as much attention to it because, well, we're, we're paying attention to the House and the Senate, and there's a lot of stuff happening in Washington, but, but Democrats, according to our forecast, are likely going to take, are going to be, the way we break it down is they're going to be governing more Americans than Republicans. Um, and I think that becomes key and interesting um, in part because of, uh, you know, you were talking earlier about voter, voter suppression laws and um, in places like Georgia, say, and, and governors can, you know, they, they wield um, veto power uh, in places. Uh, so I would say I think that the Georgia and Florida governor's races are incredibly interesting. And if people don't know, Andrew Gillum uh, is running in Florida. Um, he is black, as is Stacey Abrams, who's running in Georgia. And to me, I mean, this goes back to our little <laughs> back and forth just now. It's, it's the idea of, I think they're really interesting campaigns from a pure strategy point of view, Abrams in particular, where it is, where she's saying, listen, my proposition is I'm going to turn out, a, register and turn out a ton of black voters, but also I am going to try to win some, let's say, like uh, disaffected white college-educated women who might have voted Republican in other elections, whatever. And I'm going to prove to you that a black woman can win those swingy voters or those voters who are, who are changing demographics. And I think that's an interesting proposition and something that's, a little, that's pretty new in, in the American South. And um, so those are, those are the two races that I think will be interesting to watch. Rick can probably talk a little bit more about Florida because I think the governor's race has potential effects on the Senate race because... Uh, Bill Nelson, who is the Democratic incumbent from Florida, who I mean, no one know, like no one knows who Bill Nelson is really. In in some ways, like he's sort of a he's an, been there for three hundred. Yeah, he, he was years. elected in two thousand. I, I, yeah, I went to, he, to your he's point. He's an that, he's a former astronaut, um, but he's just not like a he's not a celebrity kind of guy. Kind yeah, of guy. he's he's sort of a head down kind of person, and so you know he's in a close race race with Rick Scott, the the governor, and if Andrew Gillum. Uh, the Democrats' gubernatorial candidate turns out certain constituencies, and people more us. than ever uh, vote party line on ballots. Then, then Andrew Gillum could really help Democrat incumbent. Uh, and and you know who else thinks Florida is important is Donald Trump. He's now got two more mm -hmm. rallies scheduled in the next 11 days in Florida because he knows his own reelection depends on Florida. Yeah. You know, I think the, I think the Florida race, the governor's race particularly, is a a great proof of candidate quality being a big factor. Andrew Gillum is quite a good candidate. Um, 
I don't think, however, if the nominee on the Republican side were not a flaming Trumper. I mean, if you guys don't know this, Ron DeSantis actually made an ad of himself reading Art of the Deal to his infant, yes. building a wall in his living room. It, it, it was so, it, this, the ick factor was so through the roof um, <laughs> that I think it actually influenced the Democratic primary and led them to pick, instead of the sort of safe, moderate Democrat, Gwen Graham, to go and just say, we want everything opposite of Trumpism. And so I think that's why Gillum is in the fight, because Trump is deeply unpopular with college-educated women, African-Americans, Hispanics, and these states, you know, Florida and Georgia, with significant minority populations, uh, are in play and, you know, because of Donald Trump. I don't think the, the generic political environment has changed, but Trump has changed the overall climate in these states and allowed more progressive candidates to rise up into the, uh, into the fight. Please. Hi, I'm Jackson. I'm a uh, junior at the college, and I was wondering, um, what do the first 100 days look like for Democrats if they happen to take back the House? And seeing that there's been a lot of infighting within even Democrats about Democratic leadership going forward, um, specifically with, you know, uh, Leader Pelosi running for, you know, the speaker seat again, how do you see that kind of um, taking place if, if the Democrats do happen to uh, take back the House? Rick, we, we heard Tagan's take on uh, the Democratic Party previously. I, I think what happens in the first 100 days, yeah, there will be a little bit of, of spritzing inside the Democratic caucus, but Pelosi has raised, I don't even know how many, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars now. Um, and so she's pretty much got an iron grip on that. If they're smart, it's always an open question, they're not going to go straight for the jugular and try to impeach Donald Trump. If they're smart... They're going to, to do what Congress was supposed to be doing all along, which is conduct oversight, to be a co-equal branch of government. So they're not acting like a bunch of junior managers at a Trump golf club. Instead, they're acting like actual you know, members of a co-equal branch of government. They're going to start the investigative process. If they're smart, they're going to start offering some, some policy things that aren't uh, you know, just esoteric Trumpism writ large, like the Republicans are doing right now. Um, but I think the, hundred day, the first 100 days... It's going to become a, a, a defining atmospheric thing of what the 2020 election looks like. That first 100 days is going to be very memorable for them. They need, to, they need to move fast. They need to hit hard. They need to hit them in a bunch of different areas. If I were advising them, I would tell them to start going after the corruption inside the administration because it's lavish and it's extensive. And that gives you a lot of things where a lot of these MAGA voters were like, oh, I want the swamp drained and Washington cleaned up. Well, you know, it is as transactional and as venal as it's ever been, and I think they've got a huge market opportunity there to play. You know, your point about Nancy Pelosi is like totally, she is, she's probably the strongest Democratic leader since LBJ. I mean, she has this idea that people are, you know, whenever she's asked, oh, so-and-so, some congressional candidate's not going to vote for you, and she, her response is, just win, baby. She just wants mm -hmm. Democrats to win because she knows it's one thing to, be a, to say you're against her, but you have to be for somebody, and she's got, she's got it locked up. Oh, there's, yeah. no, there's, there's no, no, no question. She's extremely that. powerful. We've got a lot of people at the mics. Are, are you lined up, please? All right. Um, so, Rick, earlier you mentioned one of the weaknesses of the Democrats was this tendency towards stunt casting. Mm -hmm. Yet we have a stunt casting call president right now, and all the candidates people are getting excited about are these so-called stunt candidates. And, like, you can't mention a celebrity's name without people seeing if they're a 2020 Democratic nominee. Like, Mark Harmon is my favorite. 
isn't that what you need to cut through the noise in the balkanized media environment and to actually break through at a national level if you don't have a national name? Well, I think the Democrats always make uh, you know, a, a category error. They start out thinking, we have to have a perfect ideological candidate, and then, a, and then below ideology, you need policy, then you need to raise the money and run the operation. And way down in the bottom, it's, are you a charismatic person who's great on television? And this election in 2020 will be waged just as 2016 was. It is a battle on television. Do you have charisma, presence, fight, energy, guts, heart? People know those things. They watch those things. There's 700 reality TV shows in this country. Now, but wait, give me a second. But the stunt casting stuff like Ocasio-Cortez that gets everybody's attention or the Betos that get everybody's attention when they are basically products of a sort of, of, of you know, hothouse environment they're not necessarily going to scale nationally. So I don't know who the perfect candidate is but for 2020. But if the television audience is going digital or dying, do you need to be super charismatic on TV anymore? Or do you need to be charismatic I mean, when, on when Instagram? When I say television, I mean by whatever digital format you were reaching. I don't care if it's on your phone or on your iPad or on, your, on, a, on a LCD screen in your house. Uh, I use that phrase completely generically. You know, whether YouTube or TV, it makes zero difference at this point. But charisma matters, and it's a big deal, and, and, and being able to be a great fighter on TV is a huge thing. And look, Hillary Clinton was not a great fighter on television. The woman took like six weeks to get four talking points down, that, and then she would deliver them in the sort of stiffest possible way. You need somebody who's a little more loose and a little faster and a little more, a little more uh, of the media. The thing, the thing that people don't, uh, they always underestimated Donald Trump. The fact is, is that he had a hit TV show for 10 years. Mm -hmm. How many people so do you hard. know that so had a hit TV that. show for 10 years? There aren't a lot of them. And he, he is an expert at communicating with people. Please. Hi, my name is Julia. Uh, my question's for anyone. I'm curious to get your thoughts on gerrymandering and how in particular gerrymandering might be affecting either a particular state or a particular um, house race. Um, so again, questions for anyone. Uh, Asha, can you talk about gerrymandering broadly, and then Claire, if there's any race maybe that, that particularly comes to mind. Is gerrymandering, no, it's not is, that, is that your no, So Claire, it's, it's you. Jerry. Yeah, I guess I would say um, we should, gerrymandering does affect outcomes in, in these races, but I think we also have to consider the fact that Americans self-sort, and that is a huge determining factor in why, you know, Democrats aren't really competitive in certain states because they cluster in areas or they're, they're not effective. Right, in, in but they they self-sort into urban centers, but they don't self-sort into crooked... Correct, connect, right? yes. But, they're, I mean, but those are similar... Th those are related. attached... Those are, those, are, those are related problems um, mm. that, that people are smushing together and, and that they, you are becoming less competitive in certain states. I guess I would say, I mean, you know, places like North Carolina are sort of historically really, really gerrymandered. Um, if you're interested in this stuff, there are these guys at, I believe, the University of Wisconsin who developed this computer program mm. to do, I'm not, I'm not, I can't, I'm not totally conversant in this right now, but you can go look, look at what they're, they're pr proposing. And actually, 538 did a big gerrymandering project a while ago where it's actually like gerrymandering, depending on, you know, what, you know, what's, theories you're throwing out there that are kind of bipartisan, it can kind of screw Democrats and screw Republicans <laughs> almost like 
in, in equal measure that, that, in that's... some ways. Um, but I, so that's why I, I, I put an emphasis on self-sorting. Gerrymandering is certainly a problem in this country, and I think a lot of people agree with that, but there's also, we, we put ourselves into corners as well. So, so it, go ahead. that's one of the dirty little secrets of gerrymandering is if you did it by computer, if an AI decided to, to do the districts, you'd have an awful lot fewer African-American elected officials in this country, an, an awful lot. Um, you'd have fewer hard progressives, you'd have fewer hard conservatives. It's, it would be more of a mess. And I will tell you from experience in Florida redistricting, the day the numbers start to come out, the first people to call the Republicans in charge to say, protect my district, and you can do whatever you want, are the African-American elected officials. It's just a brutal fact of the deal. They want to protect their 60% plus districts. And, and you know, so everyone, everyone is out for themselves when it comes to redistricting. And so you know, if you did it with a net neutral approach, you would end up with a lot fewer uh, seats that are guaranteed to be minority representation. If you're interested in it, my, my coworker Galen Druk did a, I think it was a five episode podcast series on gerrymandering in different states that kind of gets into this, the, yeah. the fights that people have. But it's, it's, it's good. And yes, it's absurd, by the way. <laughs> it's absurd. It is absurd. But, you know, what's interesting about it is that if you look at the articles that were five, six, seven years ago, there were tons of articles written about how the Republicans had so successfully gerrymandered mm -hmm. the House seats that they had a permanent majority until at least after the 2020 census. And here we are in 538 suggesting there's a six out of seven chance the Democrats are going to take the House. So, you know, as, as, I'm not saying that's meaningless, but voting is more powerful. Uh, let's just take one or two more questions. Uh, I apologize. A lot of folks are, are lined up. Please. Hi, my name is Shakira Hall, and I'm a freshman in the college. So Stacey Abrams and her campaign currently are accusing Brian Kemp of being a racially motivated voter suppressor. Uh, he's being sued by several civil rights groups of uh, suppressing over 50,000 votes of mainly African-American people because of his position as Secretary of State uh, presiding over the state's voter registration laws. Do you think that Brian Kemp is actually suppressing these votes in order to win the midterm election? <laughs> Tegan, what are your insights? He basically admitted it at a fundraiser the other day, yeah. that the only way he can win is to, is to suppress the vote. So, Yes. That's right from his mouth. <laughs> with 65% of the votes, in, or 60% of approximately the vote in Georgia coming out of the donut of counties surrounding Atlanta, um, if he doesn't dial down African-American turnout, it's a much more challenging proposition for him. So, yeah. And he said it. He, he, he came right out in a private fundraiser and just said, you know, this is my pathway to victory. And it is, I mean, I guess it's interesting, too, that um, I think generally we're all taught in civics class that the right to vote is, is universal and, it should, and voting should be easy, but it's, that's become a partisan issue in a lot of ways because I think you were saying this earlier, the more people that turn out in an election, it's probably going to be good for Democrats because it means that, you know, historically, yeah, historically it's better. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is, it is, if you step back and think about it, kind of crazy that in America access to voting is highly partisan. Um, and I mean, and Stacey Abrams herself, I think, has, you know, came to prominence, rose to prominence because she was fighting against Kemp yeah. explicitly. So, yeah, it's an interesting election. So the two of you have been standing. Do you have a question? Yes, please. Great. And then I think there's a gentleman behind you who's been uh, standing for a while, so we'll do that, and then uh, okay. we'll close it up. It's often been noted that nothing educates like pain. What level of... Um, 
reputational pain, electoral pain, personal pain, need the GOP suffer to abandon Trump? And also a direct question to Rick Wilson. Could you, could you address personal rumors that your cat, in fact, does have a name? My, my cat does not have a name. This is a scurrilous... Uh, Mr. Wilson, I, I have it on a, a considerable authority that your cat's name is Kitty. No, it's, the cat's name is Nameless. I'm going to fight this one until the last dog dies. Um, no, it is, it's Nameless. Follow <laughs> Rick at the Rick Wilson. And, uh, you won't follow regret the cat. it, or you will regret it, but, you know... Um, there is apparently no upper boundary so far. Now, if we end up with, and, and I think if this, is a, if this is a narrow Democratic day on Tuesday and they get you know, 28 seats or 30 seats, there will be plenty of people in the party who go, see, it wasn't that bad. It's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll be fine. Um, we, we kept the Senate. Um, I think if it's closer to 40 seats, then there's some real uh, gristle getting churned up in the, in the Republican leadership. And I think what you're going to see uh, when there are a ton of Republicans up for grabs in 2020 in the U.S. Senate race um, is, a, is a moment where these guys uh, don't have those two luxuries. I don't think we're going to have the same economy we have today in 2020. And I don't think we're going to be lucky enough to get by without some external thing happening to this country here or abroad um, that is a real test, unlike we've had in the last two years. So I think, I, I think at some point you will have, and I have a typology of, of Republicans, about in the House and Senate, and in the House there are about 50 real true believer Trump guys. I mean, they really believe this stuff. In the Senate, maybe eight or 10 true believers. The other side of it, it the guys are opportunistic or they're terrified. I think the terror factor is going to rise a lot higher in 2020, and you're going to see people try to find ways to distance themselves, just as by the time we get to 2012, after the 2010 blowout, you had a lot of Democrats saying, I'm, I'm independent of Barack Obama, I'm not going to listen to everything he says. Um, so I think you're going to end up with that. But it, right now, the pain level is, is suppressed because of FOMT, fear of mean tweets. <laughs> and these guys are terrified mm -hmm. that Donald Trump will say something nasty about them and they will get a billion death threats and, they will get, and their Facebook and Twitter feeds will turn into a Mad Max hellscape and, and they're going to get primaried by some kook. So, what, you know, do you, what do you think about uh, what the upper limits of criminality are? If, oh, no. Uh, oh, Donald Trump could eat a live baby on television and they would go, so you could, hey, you Obama think, was a cuck. He didn't eat a live baby. Trump's strong. <laughs> I know. I, I seriously don't think there is. So if you think, you think if Mueller came, like, found that there was any kind of explicit quid pro quo, they'll still stick with it. They, uh, these in, guys, in these guys are. In exchange for help from Russia. You could get video of Putin giving him a sack of cash, and a lot of the Republican caucus is going to go, no, nah, it's all right. He's just a, he's a deal maker. You, you know, well, how, excuse it. <laughs> and you know how video can be faked these days, oh, anyhow. Yeah, so of course, wouldn't wouldn't believe it. Um, I know you were standing for a while uh, for the last question. That I last question from the crowd. And then I've got one to close. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> Kentucky Six was mentioned as a bellwether for like what kind of night election night is. Uh, I guess I'm curious, and all of you can give a hot take uh, about a race that is. Not necessarily about whether of like how what kind of election night it was for each party, but actually like where the country is at. So I'm thinking of 2016, uh, Ron Johnson's surprise Senate win in Wisconsin. Uh, surprise to me. 
um, was like, that really drove home, okay, like, things are different in the mass kind of thought space than I thought. Is there any race for any of you that would, you know, if the outcome would represent a different finger on the pulse of the American politic? Claire, anything that uh, comes to your mind? Well, I was just thinking we haven't talked enough about the Midwest here. So um, I guess I would say if, you know, Scott Brown loses in Wisconsin. um, Walker. Sorry, Scott, Scott Brown. Scott Walker loses in Wisconsin. Or if, you know, Richard Cordray, the Democrat in Ohio, wins that race. Um, you know, just looking at, at, at state, Trump states from the, you know, where they're maybe not competitive on the Senate map, but if we're looking to, you know, an executive p- uh, p- uh, position, maybe an indication of how um, the politics on a state level are percolating in these important presidential states and sort of the off years, I guess the... Those I'd just bring up as you know races that I'm interested in, although not I'm not wholly focusing on them. I think they're interesting. Uh, four, four to fifteen, the Spanner race in Lakeland used to be the uh, used to be one of the reddest seats in Florida with Dennis Ross. Now it's a bloodbath, and you know it's 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 tied up. And so I, I look at that as a weird you know it's a suburban uh, it's sort of caught in the suburbs between Tampa and Orlando. So in, for Florida's I four students of Florida's I four corridor. It's a really interesting lab. I'm watching that one very closely right now. If you go to 2016, though, and you think about just how monumental that was that Trump won this election, um, I think the race that's equivalent of that is O'Rourke in Texas. If he, is, sure. if he wins the Senate race in Texas, the Dem- Democrats will take control of the Senate, and the ramifications will be at just mm-hmm. off the charts. Oh, yeah. You, if you break Ted Cruz in Texas, and I still think it's, a, I still think it's you know, a, a, a one in five shot, if you break Ted Cruz in Texas, that's, that ele- this, something has happened in the country that we're, we haven't seen in the numbers yet. It will be seismic if, te- if Texas goes. And so to close out, uh, our discussion today is blue wave or red save. Um, for the first three of you, uh, put yourselves out there. What's it going to be, blue wave or red save? And for Asha, if you could bring us home with the question, is democracy, in fact, on the ballot? Tegan? I think if you, if you go back to 2016, it was a shock to everybody that Hillary Clinton lost, except for the fact that it is extremely hard for, uh, in a presidential race for, the, for a, a party that just held the White House for two, two, for two terms to win again. It is likewise extremely hard for Republicans this time to, to hold the House and to even hold ground in the Senate. It's extremely unlikely. So if, if you combine just the historical norms with the fact that Donald Trump has just a ridiculously low approval rate historically and that the Democrats are energized in raising money and in just gobs and gobs, then I would I think there's going to be a blue wave. If it's a binary, I'll say it's a blue wave, but I guess I'd call it a demi wave uh, because, you know, let's say the, the Democrats win the House and they win a lot of governorships because, by the way, they lost a ton of power over the eight years of the Obama administration on state legislators and governor's mansions. Um, you still don't have control of the Senate, which is obviously a pretty important um, chamber to hold, but I think things like fundraising numbers and the idea of sort of excitement surrounding candidates heading up to the, the 2019 year, which, which will litig- litigate out the, the, the primary, um, I guess I'll say I'll, I'll go with blue demi-wave. In, in true 538 true fashion. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, that's right. It's got to be a long-winded answer. Yeah. Yes, Rick. Uh, I think that the Democrats have a, a whole set of pathways to win the House. 
there are, there are a whole bunch of different state scenarios and, and, and individual race scenarios where they can take the House. And the Senate is a volatile and problematic mix right now. And I think there are ways that, that, that even some of these tie ball game races can break to the Democrats. I don't think they're going to take the Senate. But I do think we, we, we're going to say it's a blue wave, especially from stuff down ballot. And I think we're looking at the, the fact that they have managed to recruit a, a portfolio of candidates this year who've been more competitive uh, across the board than, than, uh, than they were expected to be. Um, and again, right now we are, we are one tweet away or one weird day on the stock market away from, from the political climate changing very quickly in this country. I mean, look, the, the volatility in this world is so high right now. For the last two and a half days, we've been talking about the fact that there are political bomb threats across this country. And so, you know, I don't think it's going to get any... Don't, don't plan on getting a lot of sleep in the next 10 days, guys. It's going to get pretty loud. So I think we're going to have a blue wave. I don't know the, I don't know the scope of it yet, but it's, de- it's definitely there. And they only need one seat to win. So... And Asha, democracy. Take a you know, take a whack at the blue wave, red save question if you would like. But but uh, democracy it, is it on the ballot? I think democracy is absolutely on the ballot. But I also think that it's a mistake to think that an election is going to resolve uh, the deterioration in democracy that has happened over the last several years. Um, this is something that has been unraveling for a while, and it's going to take a lot of more work than just of politicians to repair it, because I think what the critical problem is, and I think we've seen it this week with the, with the bomb threats and, and what's been going down, is a severe deterioration of social trust. Um, and that's not something that politicians or policies can repair. That is the work of the people. Um, and I think what a potential shift electorally can do, hopefully, is to change the tone and start modeling some of the social trust that I think needs to be repaired here. Um, And if that doesn't happen, then I think that the shame spiral that we are in as a country um, is going to continue and also continue more rapidly than it has even now. My thanks to Asha, Rick, Claire, Tegan. Yeah, ending us, picking us up at the, at the end. To, to the IOP team for running this terrific forum. To you for coming. If you like these conversations, I hope you'll check them out at chrisreback.com. There are 11 days. Go vote, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.